I would like very much to give an introduction to Hosea. Hosea is the beginning of 12 books that are called the Minor Prophets. And the other prophets are called the Major Prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, the reason given for calling these Minor Prophets is that they are brief books, and for the most part they are. But actually, Hosea is longer than the book of Daniel, has more chapters in it than the book of Daniel. So that that's not a good, valid distinction. And I would like to say right here and now that the minor prophets, so-called, they are not minor at all. Each one of them batted in the major league, and each one of them batted 300. Each one of them was a star himself in the message that he brought. And actually, some of the minor prophets, our so-called minor prophets, are quoted by the so-called major prophets. You will find, for instance, in Jeremiah 26, 18, there is such a quotation. Now, these men in the minor prophets... The promoters of the social gospel have used them a great deal because of the fact that they were extremely nationalistic and they dealt with the fact that God's people had broken the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And therefore, it altogether has to do with the works, good works, and for that reason, liberalism has majored in these and as a result has actually missed the main message. We're going to find that when we get into the prophecy of Hosea. Now you will find when you open to this prophet, you will find that he was a prophet to what is called the northern kingdom. That is the kingdom of Israel as distinguished from Judah at the division of the two. The first verse reads like this, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now he mentions the kings in the north and the south. And he mentions more in the southern kingdom of Judah, but that doesn't make any difference. They're just contemporary with Jeroboam in the north and contemporary with Hosea, and he emphasizes that. That is the time now that he wrote, he is the prophet that compares to Jeremiah in the southern kingdom. Jeremiah is the prophet of the southern kingdom that warned his people. They were going into captivity, and he lived to see it. Hosea warned the northern kingdom. They were going into captivity to Assyria, and he lived to see it. And Jeremiah and Hosea have a great many things in common. Now, I want to come back and talk a little about this man, Hosea because we are going to talk about him again in the message today. But I want to think of him in connection with the prophet 
Jeremiah. Jeremiah stood actually at the very end of the time of the nation Judah. He predicted their captivity, and they went in the captivity. Hosea is the prophet to the northern kingdom, and actually he prophesied long before Jeremiah. And he said practically the same thing to them. You find that the experience of these men are very similar in many ways. Both of these men spoke with a broken heart. Jeremiah was told never to marry. He was commanded not to. He loved his nation and he loved his people. And he spoke of a broken heart. The message he gave broke his heart. And God wanted that kind of a man because it revealed how God felt toward them. Now, Hosea apparently was a different type of a man. And his is not a public experience. His is a very personal and very private experience. He comes out of a broken home, as we shall see today, and with tear-stained eyes went before the nation to tell the nation that what had happened to him in his home was exactly what was happening out there in the nation. And he had a broken heart, and he knew exactly how God felt toward these people. And you're going to find out in this prophecy here the great theme that he uses is return unto the Lord. And you find that, for instance, in Hosea, the sixth chapter, verse 1, "...come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, he'll bind us up." And the word return occurs 15 times in this prophecy. Ephraim occurs 36 times, and that is the name, and I would say sort of a personal tender name in a way that God had for the northern kingdom, though they had gone into idolatry. Now, he mentions backsliding. It occurs three times in this prophecy. And we're going to find out what backsliding really is. And there's another word that's greatly misunderstood in the church today. And so, Jeremiah, we saw before, he mentioned it. Hosea and Jeremiah are the two prophets who talk about backsliding and the cure for it. And therefore, what Jeremiah was to Judah at the time of the captivity of the southern kingdom, Hosea was to Israel over a century before at the time of the captivity of the northern kingdom. Both spoke out of a heart-breaking personal experience. Now, the message that you will listen to today is a sermon, a sermon I gave some time ago. But you must remember it's a sermon and not just a Bible study. There are those that think that my method of preaching and my method of teaching is entirely different. I never felt so myself personally, but if you distinguish that difference, it's simply because of the fact that this was a sermon that was given before a congregation of, I'm confident, 3,000 or more people besides a radio audience at that time. The greatest sin in all the world. The accusation is sometimes made 
that the present-day pulpit is weak and uncertain. Likewise, it's charged that instead of being a voice in the wilderness today, the modern pulpit has settled down comfortably to become just a sounding board for the whims and wishes of a comfortable and indifferent people who have itching ears. If the charge is true, and it's likely that it is, then it's because the pulpit is reluctant to grapple with the great issues of life. This hesitancy, I think, is born of a desire to escape criticism. It's a dread of becoming offensive to the finer sensibilities. More often, I think it's a cowardly fear of facing the raw realities of life and wrestle with this leviathan of living issues today. The pulpit today quotes poetry and sprinkles rose water. It lives in a land of make-believe instead of saying to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The theater today, the movie, and all other agencies of communication, they deal with life stripped of all of its niceties. These instruments for reaching and teaching the masses take the gloves off, and they wade into the problems that we face daily. But not so the pulpit. The pulpit has avoided these issues. As we come this morning to the prophecy of Hosea, we cannot avoid dealing with the problems and issues of life. For there is a story that's back of the headlines in the prophecy of Hosea. It's not a pretty story. But we must understand it if we're to understand the message of Hosea. And that story, which is back of the prophecy of Hosea, is the tragedy of a broken home. You have in this book the personal experience of Hosea, and that is the background of his message. He walks out of a broken home to speak to the nation from a heart that is breaking. He knew exactly how God felt because he felt the same way. Now, the home is the rock foundation of society and always has been of any people. God has given it to mankind, regardless of who they are and where they are. He gave it at the very beginning. It's the most important unit in the social structure. It is to society what the atom is to this universe. We are told today that the little lowly atom is the building block of the universe. Well, the home today is the building block of society. And a building is known by the bricks that go in it. The color of the building is determined by the individual bricks. 
The character of the building is determined by the character of the bricks that go into it. And no nation is any stronger today than the homes that make it up. For the home determines the color and complexion of society. It's the home today that uh, reveals the strength of any nation or any people. The home is the chain of a nation that holds it together and up and down this land of ours, down the streets and the boulevards, there are the links in this chain and the chain runs on out into the highways and byways of life. And no chain is any stronger than the links that make it up. Those individual links are important. And so, my beloved, the home is the place that's the very bedrock foundation of any society, and it's the foundation, if you please, of the church. The home is where we live and move and have our being. It's in the home where we are ourselves, or we dress up physically and psychologically when we go out. We put up quite a front sometimes when we go through our front door and move out upon the street. But it's within the walls of the home that we take off our masks and we are really ourselves. Because of the strategic position of the home, God has thrown about it certain safeguards to protect it. God has put around the home certain marks, certain tremendous safeguards, certain protection certain bulwarks, in order that he might protect that which is so important. Well, back of the home, God has moved and had a great deal to say about that which is the bulwark of the home, marriage. God has given more attention to the institution of marriage than he has to any other institution that's in this world. Society never made marriage. Society found marriage. God made marriage. He gave it to mankind, and marriage rests upon his direct word. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God performed the first marriage ceremony. He gave the first bride away. He blessed the first couple. Marriage is more than just a legal contract. It's more than an economic arrangement. It's more than a union of just those with mutual love. It's an act of God, if you please. It rests upon his fiat command. There are many young people today that think all that you need to get married is to get a license and a preacher, and then you've got it made. My beloved... If you're going to have a successful marriage, you have to have God. And God will have to make it. Otherwise, that marriage must go on the rocks. God has given a drive to the race to reproduce in the framework of marriage. And that's what makes the home. He said the twain shall be one flesh, and before man walked out of the Garden of Eden... God gave him this institution, and besides the skins that Adam and Eve had on, the only thing they had was a marriage certificate from God.
That's all. That's the only institution that came out of the Garden of Eden. Marriage is a sacred relationship. It's a holy union. Remember Paul said, He sinneth not, let them marry. The New Testament, I think, sums up the mind of God when it says, Marriage is honorable in all. Therefore, my beloved, marriage cannot be broken by just some little legal act. It can't be broken by fit of temper. It can't be broken by self-will. I personally believe there are only two acts which break marriage. I mean real marriage now. The first act is death, of course. That automatically severs the relationship. The second is unfaithfulness. And that's unfaithfulness on the part either of the man or the woman. That rips the relationship in two. And the one that's guilty of adultery was in the Old Testament to be dealt with in one of the harshest manners that's imaginable. I wonder if you've ever noticed that. I want to... I want you to notice first Leviticus, the 20th chapter, the 10th verse, and the importance that God placed upon it. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter, the 20th and 21st verses, Then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. Now, there are two words I think that uh, we should say here by way of explanation an amplification. The first is that there are a lot of zealous Christians today that go over to Romans 7, 2, and they, uh, they take that entirely out of context. Let me read it to you. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. And they come up and say, well, you see, as long as the husband lives, then there's never grounds for remarriage. You must put yourself back under law. And you must remember that under law, the unfaithful member of a, of a marriage wasn't alive. He was out somewhere pushing up daisies through some rocks in a rock pile. You see, if that was enforced in Southern California today, we couldn't have freeways because there wouldn't be room for them. You couldn't get around the rock pile in Southern California. You see, the guilty party in the Old Testament was stoned to death, so there was no living one left. But today we don't do that. And so there's a different arrangement today. I'm not sure about what Paul, under unfaithfulness in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, between a, a believer and unbeliever, makes unfaithfulness one that walks out upon the believer. Then will you notice that there's something else that needs a little amplification here? We judge from the passage I read in Deuteronomy. It says, if the damsel is guilty, and she, and so on, and someone says, uh, 
why in the world is the woman picked on? Isn't the man guilty? Yes, my beloved, but there are two things that you need to bear in mind. One is that the word used is always the generic term. It's anthropos in the Greek, which means man is mankind, and it does not have respect to sex, but means either man or woman. We have that same thing in legal uh, terminology today. Uh, I've noticed some contracts where it says if the party of the first part, if he does something, if he promises, if he agrees, well, sometimes he is she, but before the law, she is he. And that's the way the law looks at it. So that's the way the term is used here. It means either one. And then you must remember that these are pictures in the Old Testament of Christ and the church. And he's never guilty, but the church is. And so when you carry that figure over, I think that you can understand and see that. Well, may I say to you, that does, mean, does not mean that there isn't a difference. I do not think that Scripture teaches a double standard, but I do think it teaches a different standard. And if you don't believe that today we have that, you go to the department store. You can't buy men's clothes in the women's department. They make a distinction. My beloved, if you go to the hospital, they have the men's ward and the women's ward. Anywhere you turn today in life, there's that distinction made. And the Scripture makes that distinction. I personally think a woman is finer than a man. I think God made her finer than a man. That's the reason when she goes bad, she's worse. I take my watch to one repairman. I take my car to another because they're different. A woman's different than a man. She's made finer than a man. I've seen children, and you have, overcome the handicap of a ne'er-do-well father. But I've never yet seen children overcome the handicap of a bad mother. Mother's the center of the home. I heard some time ago of a woman who was asked to take an office in a church. She refused to do it, and she gave as a reason. She says, I'm a missionary to the nursery, and there are three pairs of eyes that are watching me, and I want to direct them to God. May I say to you that God's put woman in the home, made her all important in that place. I think that I can make this clear by quoting to you the definition of what is a girl by Alan Beck. I think this is one of the loveliest things that's ever been composed. Will you listen to this? Little girls are the nicest things that happen to people. They are born with a little bit of angel shine about them, and though it wears thin sometimes, there's always enough left to lasso your heart. Even when they're sitting in the mud or crying temperamental tears or prating up the street in mother's best clothes, a little girl can be sweeter and badder oftener than anyone else in the world. She can jitter around and stomp and make funny noises and frazzle your nerves. Yet just when you open your mouth, she stands there demure with that special look in her eyes. A girl is innocence playing in the mud, beauty standing on its head, and motherhood dragging a doll by the foot. 
God borrows from many creatures to make a little girl. He uses the song of a bird, the squeal of a pig, the stubbornness of a mule, the antics of a monkey, the spryness of a grasshopper, the curiosity of a cat, the slyness of a fox, the softness of a kitten. And to top it off, he adds the mysterious mind of a woman. A little girl likes new shoes, party dresses, small animals, dolls, make-believe, ice cream, makeup, going visiting, tea parties, and one boy. She doesn't care so much for visitors, boys in general, large dogs, hand-me-downs, straight chairs, vegetables, snowsuits, or staying in the front yard. She's loudest when you're thinking, prettiest when she's provoked you, busiest at bedtime, quietest when you want to show her off, and most flirtatious when she absolutely must not get the best of you again. She can muss up your home, your hair, your dignity, spend your money, your time, and your temper. Then just when your patience is ready to crack, her sunshine peeks through and you're lost again. Yes, she's a nerve-wracking nuisance, just a noisy bundle of mischief. But when your dreams tumble down and the world is a mess, when it seems you're pretty much of a fool after all, she can make you a king when she climbs on your knee and whispers, I love you best of all. My beloved, the prophecy of Hosea is the story of a broken home. It's a story of that which must be contrasted with God's ideal of marriage and of womanhood. That's its message. May I say to you that this is the way God tells his story. Now we're prepared to look at the story that's here in Hosea. In the hill country of Ephraim, in one of the many little towns there, a little town that's not on the maps of this world, there lived two young people. One was a boy by the name of Hosea, the other was a girl by the name of Goma. They fell in love. Same old story. It's been repeated thousands and thousands and millions of times. I don't think it's stretching the imagination to say that they fell madly in love with each other. And then, for some unaccountable reason, Goma went bad. She resorted even to the oldest profession that's known to mankind. Goma had done the things she should not have done, and Hosea was broken-hearted. Shame filled his soul, and he had recourse to the Mosaic law, and he could have taken her before the elders of the city and had her stoned to death. Does that remind you of another story that took place 700 years later in that same hill country when a man by the name of Joseph was engaged to a girl by the name of Mary? The only thing is, Joseph was wrong, and the angel had to appear to him. This man Hosea was right, for Gomer was guilty. 
And it's at this particular juncture that the book of Hosea opens. Will you listen now to the second verse of the first chapter, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Now, there have been those today that have made the statement that what you have here is nothing in the world but an allegory, that this really never happened. May I say that such trifling as that with the Word of God waters it down till it becomes a harmless sort of thing and meaningless, and it's sickening. May I say to you that this is something that actually happened. Let's face it. God commanded this man, Hosea, to break the Mosaic law and go marry this woman. He said, you go get her and marry her. The law said stone her, God said marry her. The thing God commanded to this man, Hosea, to do must have caused him to revolt in every fiber of, of his being. But this man, Hosea, did not demur. He obeyed God wholly and completely and explicitly. And he went and took Gomer in holy wedlock. He gave her his name and she came into his home and listened to the apostle Paul as he speaks of this. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. And my friend, in that little town... The tempo of gossip was really picked up. Oh, I tell you, that home of Hosea became a desert island in a sea of criticism. It was an isolation ward of local society. A case of leprosy in the home would have not have broken off contact any more effectively than this thing that had happened. Imagine this man marrying this woman. Children were born into the home. Three of them were born. Let me tell you, there's meaning here. Jezreel was the name of the first one. It means God will scatter and God will avenge. The reference, as God told Hosea, was directly to the house of Jehu, who had carried out God's instructions in destroying the house of Ahab, but he'd done it in hatred, and he'd done it with great personal vengeance. And God says, I'll judge. But then he says, I will scatter Israel, but there's going to be mercy even in my judgment. That's the first child. The second child was named, she was a girl, Lo-Ruhamah, and it means She never knew a father's pity. Now, that doesn't mean she was an orphan. It means she didn't know who her father was. This woman has started to go bad again. God is saying to these people in Hosea's day, the northern kingdom that now has gone into idolatry, you will not know my pity, for I'm not your father. And that brings us to the last child. What a story is here. Lo, Ami was the name of the last boy. It means not my people. 
If you want to put it in the singular, it's not my child. Hosea said, I didn't know about the second one, but I do know about the third one. I'm not the father. Not my child. What a message. What a message to that day and what a message to this day. The liberal today says, everybody's the son of God. God says, you're wrong. I have no illegitimate children. I know who my children are. You think my children are the offspring of this kind of a union? Absolutely not. You are only my child through faith in Jesus Christ. And it was the Lord Jesus that said to these in his day, who said, we are sons of Abraham. He said, you are of your father, the devil. You could make no claim of being God's child. My friend this morning, are you law on me? Are you God's child today? Are you just an illegitimate child? You're just saying something that's not true. You become a child of God. To as many as received him, that is the Lord Jesus, to them gave he the right, the authority, to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than believe on his name. This is a sad story, is it not? And to cap it all, Gomer left home. She ran away. Now I'm confident that you're willing to say, well, certainly God's going to say to this man now, you've done all you can, Hosea. You, you tried to reform the woman, and it didn't do any good. She's returned back to her old life of becoming a common prostitute. Take the children and leave her. God says, go get her. Hosea went after her, and she wouldn't come back. God says, send the children. And these three children went after her, and she still wouldn't come back. And as women did in that day, they sold themselves into slavery. And this man, Hosea, went and bought her and brought her back. Oh, my beloved, what a picture of a Savior today. He created us, and we belong to him. And then we're guilty of going off and giving our love and our affection, our time, to the sin of the world. And in the midst of that, when we were yet sinners, he came down and bought us with a price in our ugly condition that he might make us his legitimate children. What love. And so it was at this particular juncture when she came back, that the message goes out from Hosea. I wish this morning I could say that when she came back that she became a faithful wife. I can't. I do not know. The book leaves us in doubt. But I do know this. That this man stepped out of a home scarred by shame. This man went before a nation with a heart that was breaking. This man had a message that had fire in it. He stood before this nation with a broken heart. And he had a sorrow that was intolerable. Scalding tears were coursing down his cheek. And he denounced the nation Israel and he says, You have been faithless to God. I know how God feels. I feel the same way. You've broken the heart of God. 
What a picture. He denounced the nation. He declared a verdict of guilty for the crime of all crimes. He said simply, but he said it specifically, that this sin was as black as it could be and that God would punish. He said this nation that had known God, this nation that God had redeemed out of Egypt, this nation that he could say, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how you, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And they, they turned right around and make a golden calf. And they hadn't learned their lesson after that experience. For at this very moment, in the northern kingdom, two golden calves had been made. And the people had turned from the living and true God. God says, you've been unfaithful. You're playing the harlot. You turn from me. You belong to me. I have redeemed you, and you've sinned. This sin is the worst sin in the world. Oh, I know that there are folk that will say this morning, I think unbelief is the greatest sin. May I say to you that in one sense unbelief is the greatest sin. If there's any sin unpardonable, it's unbelief. But it's not an act, it's a state, and we're all born in it. Rebellion against God, we're in that. But it, thank God, it's pardonable. Christ died that when you and I will exercise faith, faith in Jesus Christ, then he'll save us. And this sin is pardonable. But unbelief is a terrible thing, and to go on in unbelief, there is no remedy, for it is. The remedy is to trust Christ. And when we continue on in unbelief, we've rejected the remedy. Then there are those that will tell you today that the greatest sin in the world is sin against light. Well, this is coming close to it. i be perfectly frank with you. I do not uh, think today that there's anything quite so bad as sinning against light. I make this statement periodically. Let me repeat it. I would 10,000 times rather be a hottentot in the darkest part of Africa this morning than to be sitting in the church of the open door and turn my back on Jesus Christ. There are people that will argue with you about what's going to happen to the hottentot, but no one can argue from the Word of God what will happen to the man who sins against light. That's a great sin who have heard the gospel, and, and it's not a personal, will be able to go out of here this morning and go into the presence of Jesus Christ and say you never heard that he died for you and that you're to trust him to be saved. You'll never be able to. There are people that are able to go into his presence and say that, but that's not the greatest sin. What is the greatest sin in all the world? The greatest sin in all the world is sin against love. This is sin that's worse. You can't get any worse than this. This is the greatest of all. And that, my friend, is the message of Hosea. Gomer was not only guilty of breaking the marriage vow, that's bad enough, but she sinned against the one who loved her. It's sin at its worst. 
May I say to you today, to sin against God today and a Savior that loves you is worse than the animism and the animalism of the heathen world today. May I say to you, the sin today of paganism is nothing compared to the sin of those. Sin against love. It's deeper and it's darker than the immorality of the underworld and the demonism of the overworld. Hosea knew what sin was, and he knew what love was. And sin against love aggravates sin. Israel knew the love of God as no nation did. You alone, God said, if I known of the nations of the world, you alone if I reveal this. You've sinned. But thank God, he's going to triumph. May I just lift out three verses out of Hosea that tell God's story. The first is Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Ephraim is Israel. That's the charge. Spiritual adultery. Then notice, though, all oh, the great pulsating passion of an infinite God. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? God says, I can't give you up. I love you too much. And that's the reason he sent Hosea back to get that woman the second and the third time. He said, Hosea, you'll have to know how I feel. Oh, it is real. And then the third and the last is Hosea 14, 8. Ephraim shall say, What have I do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I'm like a green fir tree. For me is thy fruit found. That's the victory. God's going to get the victory, my beloved. There is a day when Israel will turn from idols back to God. And that's my reason for believing that maybe Goma did turn and become a good wife and a good mother. I do not know. But I do know this God is going to triumph. And the picture is the picture of the nation Israel. Somebody says, Buzz it, but does it have any application to us today? Yes. Does this shocking description of spiritually... Adultery, does it fit the church today? Well, the church is called the bride of Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, I have espoused you, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The church is to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ as a bride. Listen. Even to the church in Ephesus, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I have something against you. Now he says, I know your works and I know your labor. And I know that you can't bear those with false doctrine. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. My friend, it's not enough this morning to be busy for Christ. It's not enough to be active today for Christ, and it's not enough to be just fundamental. Those things are important and they have their place. But the important thing is, have you left your first love? Do you love him today?
Hosea means salvation. It's the same word as Joshua, and Joshua is the same word as Jesus in the New Testament. Our Hosea today is joined to a spiritual harlot. picture that is given in Revelation 17. It's the most frightful picture in the Bible. It's a picture of a church called a great harlot, Mystery Babylon. That's the way the organized church is going today. Oh, how many this morning are covering up their frustration, their lack of spiritual experience today, the reality by just being busy. Merely nothing in the world but just nervous agitation. Down underneath they cannot say, I love him, I'm true to him. With hot tears today he accuses the church of being lukewarm. God pity the man married, the lukewarm woman. God pity our Savior today. Joined to a church that's just lukewarm. Oh, that, he said, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were in love with me. I wish you did care for me above everything. That's what he said. Let me be very personal this morning. How about you? Has there come between the Savior this morning in your soul a cloud. It'll shut you away from him, I'll tell you that. Spurgeon is crossing the street one day, and, and he stopped and had prayer. And when he got the other side, a friend said to him, What in the world did you do praying in the middle of the street? He said, A, a cloud came between my soul and Christ, and I couldn't let it stay there even till I got to the other side of the street. How about you today? He says this morning, as he said yonder with the sea of Galilee, lovest thou me? That's all important. May I say that it, it's so important today that he is saying, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the mercy seat for our sins and if you are here this morning without Christ, don't take any comfort from this message. Because you can walk out of here turning your back on a Savior that just simply said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you reject Jesus Christ today, you're not just doing something that's bad. You're not just turning away in unbelief. My friend, you're committing the greatest sin of all. You're turning away from a God who loves you and died for you. There's no sin like that. Now I return to the prophecy of Hosea. You've listened to a message that we gave some time ago as a sermon. But we felt it furnished a proper introduction to Hosea. This man is a remarkable prophet. 
And I personally do not like the classification of major and minor prophets. Actually, that was put in by the church, I suppose, about the third century. It was not that way in the Hebrew Bible. And Hosea was just put with the other prophets and was not put last in the Old Testament. If they had waited until I got here to make an arrangement of the books of the Bible, I would have made the arrangement of putting the prophetic books with the historical books, the ones they belong with. And have you noted that practically all of the writing prophets, their message belongs to the divided kingdom. When the kings fail, God raised up prophets to speak to the nation. And these men, every one of them are outstanding. And just because some of them didn't write long prophecies, after all, you wouldn't want to call Elijah a minor prophet, would you? He'd be a mini-minor because he never wrote any prophecy. If Elijah might be classified the first, John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, never wrote anything, and yet he was a prophet of God and announced the coming of the Savior. So that when we come here to the prophecy of Hosea, we're coming to one of the great books of the Bible. It actually belongs before Jeremiah. Hosea was contemporary with Isaiah and Micah, and also his compatriot in the northern kingdom, Joel. Hosea and Joel in the north, Isaiah and Micah in the southern kingdom. And this man, Hosea, would compare to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the last prophet before the southern kingdom went into captivity. But over a hundred years before that, Hosea had been the prophet in the northern kingdom, and he occupied the same position of warning the nation, and he did it with a broken heart. But his broken heart comes from an experience that he's had, and that's what we've been dealing with. You see, Jeremiah, his was personal, but nevertheless, it was more public. He loved his nation, and he was a tender-hearted man that broke his heart to have to give them a harsh message, but that's the kind of a man God chose. Now, I don't consider Hosea a tender-hearted man like Jeremiah, but This man had an experience, and as we've seen the past two days, he comes out of a broken home with a broken heart. And we're going into detail now into the text. And from that broken home and that broken heart where a wife had been unfaithful to him and had become a harlot, he even loved her so much, he went back and took her again, and she played the harlot again. This man with hot tears rushing down his cheeks, walks out before the nation, and he says, I want to tell you how God feels about you because I feel the same way. I've had a personal experience in my own home. And this man with a broken heart could speak to his nation, you see. Now, with that in mind, let's look here for just a few moments at the outline that we've made of this book. Very simple outline. Actually, in just two major divisions, we have 14 chapters here. Actually, more than you have in the book of Daniel, yet we call this a minor prophet. And we have in the first three chapters that which is personal. And that's the prophet and his faithless wife, Gomer. 
It's the scandal of his home and the gossip of the town that we get in the first three chapters. Then we have the prophetic. It's the Lord and the faithless nation Israel from chapters 4 through 14. So now we come in chapter 1 to the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, the harlot. Let's read this as we move along. Verse 1 again, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, these were the kings in the south at this particular time. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, king in the north. Now, you can't have them any worse than what we got here in the way of kings in the northern kingdom. Now we have the time given to us. Verse 2, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. This is the way that God approached the prophet, and it's a rather startling thing. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of harlotry, and children of harlotry, for the land hath committed great harlotry, departing from the Lord. Now, I highly recommend the Schofield Reference Bible. If you don't have one, you, you ought to get one. I still use the old one a great deal, but right now I have before me the new Schofield Reference, and I recommend it. Some people get the idea that those of us who use and recommend the Schofield Bible that we feel like the notes are inspired. Now, just to show you that I don't believe they're inspired, I want to say I totally disagree with the first statement that you have here in the way of notes for this verse. And I'm reading the note. God did not command Hosea to take an immoral wife, but permitted him to carry out his desire to marry Gomer, warning him that she would be unfaithful and using the prophet's sad experience as a basis for the presentation of lessons about God's relation to Israel. Now, I consider this a very nice way to get God off of the hook. But you don't have to get him off the hook. He takes full responsibility for this. And the way I understand this is that the Lord said to Hosea, Go! And my parents said that to me as a boy, go someplace, go to the store, or go to school. I always interpreted that as a command. And I'm of the opinion that this is not just a permission, it's a command. Because this man, Hosea, as we've said in the message that we've given, a young man there in the northern kingdom, probably in the Ephraim country, this beautiful girl that he met, he fell madly in love with her. And then she played the harlot, and naturally he wanted to put her aside. He wanted to marry her, but he wouldn't dare do it in a little town. And the Mosaic Law said, stone her. What's he going to do? God says, go and marry her. And God's actually asking him to break the Mosaic Law. Somebody says, well, that's terrible. Not when God says you to do it, friends. God said to him... Hosea, you are in love with her. Now you want to put her aside. I don't want you to put her aside. I want you to marry her. And he said that she's a wife of harlotry. She's played the harlot. And 
children of harlotry. Apparently, there was a record in the family of that. Then he's going to make it clear to him at the beginning how he's going to use this in this prophet's life. He says, for the land, that is now the northern kingdom, hath committed great harlotry, departing from the Lord. Now, he's comparing that which is physical harlotry or physical adultery to that which is spiritual adultery or spiritual harlotry. And that you'll find is applicable to the believer today. You can play fast and loose with God, and you're nothing in the world but a harlot, a spiritual harlot in his sight. That's exactly the language that he uses, and God uses pretty plain language. And I could wish today the pulpit was a little stronger than it is. We are trying to be very nice today, all of us are. And as a result, we're not really sometimes as strong as the Word of God. Now, will you notice, we move on. Verse 3 now of chapter 1 of Hosea. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, who conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, we can see readily not only the marriage, but the children are going to present here a real spiritual lesson for the nation Israel. Jezreel is the name of the son, and it means God will scatter and God will avenge the blood of Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is the name of a city. I've been through the ruins of it. And it's the name of a famous plain. I've been through that. I'm sure that many of you have. We call it Armageddon, actually. Esdraelon, the Valley of Esdraelon. And it has a long, bloody history in the past and still has and will have in the future. Now, this is a son. God is going to scatter the northern kingdom. And you remember Isaiah's children had a spiritual message for the nation. Now I read verse 6. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah. Now, what does Lo-Ruhamah mean? And by the way, if you have a whole lot of daughters in your family and you've run out of names, I've got several suggestions to make to you, and here's one of them, Lo-Ruhamah. I don't know whether you'd want to use it or not, because it means unpitied. And this has a tremendous message. Listen to it. Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. There's always been the question of whether it's possible for a person to step over a line and the grace of God not be able to reach them. And there are those that believe that you could never step over that line. And then there are those that believe that you can step over the line. Well, may I give you my viewpoint of it, and you can take my judgment for what it's worth, but I think the meaning is actually somewhere between. And this is what I mean, and I'm not trying to run with the hare and with the hounds, both in this. But I do not believe that you can ever get to a place 
where the grace of God couldn't reach down and touch you. They just don't get that low that the grace of God can't go down and get you. But wait just a minute. You can keep on sinning in the face of the grace and mercy of God and keep turning it down and keep turning away from God as these people were doing. And there comes a day when you've stepped over a boundary. And it doesn't mean the grace of God can't reach you, but it does mean that there'll be nothing in you that the grace of God can lay hold of. Now, I think I've used this illustration recently about when I first came to Pasadena as pastor in a church here. That's been many years ago, back in about 1940. And shortly after I came here, a wife wanted me to go see her sick husband. He was at home and dying there. I went to see him, and I presented the gospel to him. She wanted me to, and he was a very polite man. He listened to me. He said, Dr. McGee, you know, I would say yes. I will accept Christ as my Savior. In fact, I'm going to do it. But he said, I want to tell you this. I have played and trifled with God all my life. I have been down to an altar 25 times. I have promised him, and then I've turned from him. And I've never been sincere. And I'll be honest with you. I can't tell you right now, when I tell you I'll accept Christ, whether I'm sincere or not. And all I could do at the funeral when I looked down at him could say under my breath, Oh, God, I hope he was sincere. I hope he really meant it. I hope the grace of God reached down and touched him. But you can trifle with God. This nation did, and the day came, God says, I'll no longer have mercy on you. And that day came. It was a tremendous day, by the way. Now he says, verse 7, But I will have mercy from the house of Judah. Now God said, I'm not ready yet to judge the house of Judah. Why? Well, for the sake of David. God said for the sake of David, he wouldn't divide the kingdom under Solomon. He said for the sake of David again and again that he would save the southern kingdom. Well, may I say to you, that somebody may want to criticize this and say, that's not fair. Well, I don't know whether it's fair or not, but I thank God, friends, that God showed mercy to me and that he was patient and continued to show mercy, and he continues today to show mercy. He says, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and I'll save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now, he says, I'm not going to save them by the fact that they've got phantom jets and atom bombs. I'm not going to save them by the means of arms. And if you want to read that story, it's a tremendous story of how God delivered these people. You'd have to go back into First Kings no, you'd have to go to Second Kings, the 19th chapter, and to Isaiah 37. You'll read how God miraculously delivered these people, the southern kingdom at this time. But he didn't deliver the northern kingdom. Now, will you notice verse 8? Now, when she had weaned lo Ruhamah, takes about a couple years over in that country to wean a child, sometimes three years. She conceived and bore a son. 
Now, here's another son. Then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Now, if that was the only verse in the Bible, I would agree with the amillennialists today that God is through with the nation Israel. And I wish devoutly that even many of our premillennial brethren would quit reaching in and pulling a verse out here and a verse out there and saying this is being fulfilled. I challenge anybody to read the prophecy of Hosea and come up with an intelligent answer that says God is through with the nation Israel. Now, just read the next verse, and we'll be clear on this. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And that's a marvelous thing. They have been decimated again and again by persecution. Think what Hitler did. And here's a marvelous prophecy that he's going to increase their number. And he says, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you're not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you're the sons of the living God. God is not through with them. You just have to keep reading the Bible, friends, and don't pull one verse out. Now will you notice verse 11. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. The nation will come together. There's no ten lost tribes, by the way. And appoint themselves one head. They don't have that, and they're not all in agreement, even over in Israel today, I can assure you. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. My, what a wonderful prophecy this is here. Now, actually, we have here five very wonderful prophecies concerning the nation Israel. It speaks of the fact that, first of all, there's going to be an increase in the population. And on several occasions, they've been practically exterminated as a people on the face of the earth. But they continue as a nation and as a people. This is for the future, and great blessing is promised for the future. Then he made it very clear to them here, in the very place where it was said, you're not my people, why, well, you're going to be the sons of the living God. That means there is coming, and the Bible speaks of it, the conversion of a nation in the future. That doesn't mean every Israelite, but it does mean that the nation as such, there'll be a great turning to God. And not only that, the southern and northern kingdoms and all the twelve tribes are to be joined together in one nation. And that's one thing you discover over there today in Israel. There is not the hegemony and the harmony that there should be. And as a result, it's a disturbance to the leaders over there. I take a Jewish journal, and the articles recently have dealt with that subject a great deal. But there's coming a day when they will be brought together, the twelve tribes and under one leader, by the way, which will be the Messiah, of course. And they're divided up over there today, as you know, in many parties. They are divided up like a railroad western pie. And then you have here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruamah. And you remember that he said, You're not my people. The day's coming when he's going to say, You are my people. He's not through with the nation Israel. 
And we're going to see that again when we get to chapter 3. And this is very important because my own private personal judgment is that this teaching that God is through with the nation Israel, it takes so much of the Old Testament and either spiritualizes it or discounts it. And if you can do that with the Old Testament and take any literal meaning out of it, just absolutely rape it as far as the meaning of it is concerned. Now, if you can do that with the Old Testament, you can do that with the New Testament. You can do that with the Epistle to the Romans. You can do that with John 3.16. But my friend, I don't think you can do it with the New Testament, and I don't think you can do it at the Old Testament either. Now, let's read on here. He says, contend with your mother. Contend. The old word in the King James is plead. I don't know that this is too much of an improvement, but it does suggest that there is great contention because she went back to practicing prostitution and she was unfaithful to him. And it brings out that contend with your mother. Contend, for she's not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her harlotry out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Now, he's turning to the nation, applying it to the nation. But you must remember that this girl he married had become a harlot. And that's not the end of the story. After they were married, and he had three children, she goes back practicing that again. And this man loved her, you see. Very frankly, the greatest sin, I think, in all the world, is not murder, it's not lying, it's not stealing. And maybe under certain circumstances, the worst sin in the world is not adultery. But may I say this, the worst sin in the world is when a man and a woman love each other and one of them becomes unfaithful. That party is guilty of, I think, the worst sin you can break. You just well be a murderer and a liar and your chances are you'd do all of those if you do the other. And it drops you to my estimation, and I'm judging from what the Scripture says, it's the worst sin you could commit. You've gone down to the very level the lowest level that you can go to when you become unfaithful to one that loves you. Now, applying that over on the other side, what is the greatest sin in the world for a Christian to commit? I know that people had mentioned some of these sins I've mentioned. That is like murder, like lying, like coveting. Oh, there are many things that the saints have today as the greatest sin. But the greatest sin is to be unfaithful to God who loved you and redeemed you. There's no sin greater than that. Now, here he says, go with to your mother and contend with her. Tell her to come back home. Tell her to turn away from our idolatries. Now, God says, I intend to judge you. And this man, Hosea, I think he said, I'll have her stone if she continues this kind of a lie. I intend to have her stone. I'll have no other alternative. And so the reason I don't think he's quite as tender-hearted as Jeremiah. Now, will you notice, we move on here, verse 4. He says, And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they are the children of harlotry. 
They're illegitimate. Now he's applying to the individuals in the nation. God is going to judge them. And this nation has gone into idolatry. And what does that mean? Well, that means the individuals have gone into idolatry. Actually, at this time, the entire nation apparently had turned to idolatry. And I'll not have mercy upon the children. They're the children of harlotry. For their mother hath played the harlot. She hath conceived them, hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Well, she's doing it for money. She says, I'm going after my lovers. There's money in prostitution. It's one of the big rackets that there is today. And by the way, I probably ought to add, it might be that Hosea was not a wealthy man, and he was not enabling her to live in the luxury she might have enjoyed before. And so she, on the side, practices harlotry. Now, what had happened to Israel was, Israel had turned to idols. That's spiritual adultery. When you turn from God as a professing Christian, you turn from him and you give yourself to the things of this world, then you're a harlot. Then you're practicing spiritual fornication and spiritual adultery. Now, what Israel was doing, they were giving the idols credit for providing for them. You see what he mentioned here? He says, I intend to judge you because you turn to your lovers and you say, well, they provide well for me. They've given me an apartment out here in the Wilshire district. Why should I go and live in the slums of Los Angeles when he'll take care of me like this? Israel was saying, well, these gods we worship now, Baal, why, they are providing for us necessities of life, bread and water. That's necessity. And wool and flax, that's clothing. He bought me a silk dress. And Israel was saying, these gods provide for us. And then oil and my drink, that is liquor. And that is luxury. In other words, they were giving credit to the idols. And God says all the time, I've been the one that's been taking care of you. Oh, today, the ingratitude, not just of the human race, but especially of those that profess to be Christians today, their ingratitude to God for all that he provides for us. How about people complaining today about conditions and everything? But you had a pretty good meal today, didn't you? You had clothing, didn't you? And I'm not sure, but what most of you have had some luxury. Who do you think provided those? Now, somebody says, well, I want you to know that I work, and I'm an intelligent man, or and I'm an intelligent woman, and I have an executive position, and I work hard for this. I'm the one that got all this. Oh, you think so? I have news for you. God provided that for you. He's the one that gave you health and strength. He's the one that gave you the job. He's the one that provides the sunshine and the water for you. And he's the one that's been good to you. And then you're going around ungrateful today. You can't sin much worse than that, my friend. We say, oh, these awful murders that are committed today, it's terrible. Oh, they're bad. But the worst sins are being committed by the children of God today that are ungrateful. Now, I know that's not popular. 
But friends, I've reached the place in my ministry, and I think it was characterized my entire ministry. I never sought popularity, and I'm not seeking it today. I'm sorry that if you don't like what we're saying, we're going to say it because that's what this book says. That's what he's saying. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up the way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. I think that God sent to us a depression, and then we had the dust bowl. I think he was speaking to us in judgment. And if we had heard God at that time, we never would have had to fight World War II. We'd never had to go to Korea And we never would have had to go to Vietnam if we'd have sent enough missionaries over there. We wouldn't have had to send so many boys to die and to be put in prison camp. Back of our problem is the fact we're not recognizing God. Now, will you notice verse 7, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I shall go and return to my first husband, For then was it better with me than now. In other words, there comes a day when that girl that's become a harlot, she's not so pretty. She's not so beautiful. She's not quite so lovely. Therefore, she finds herself being put out. And that's exactly what was happening to the nation Israel. And they say, now we go back to God, but we're time service. Verse 8 For she did not know that I gave her grain and wine with oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. God says, I'll judge you. And I think the story of our nation especially during these difficult times, is a recognition of a nation. It began back in World War I. Oh, how we have become sophisticated today. We now even say that homosexuals should be accepted in society. God says when that becomes prevalent in a nation, it means I've given up that nation. And then you hear of all the murders that are being committed today by this crowd, and then you're going to accept them into society. My friend, these are sinners. And this is a mark of a nation that's going down the tube when you begin to accept this sort of thing. We have today too many judges that know a great deal about the law, but they know nothing about how God overrules even the laws of a nation, especially when they make the wrong laws And wrong men sit in judgment. Let's move on down. I'm going to drop down to verse 10. Now will I uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. None shall deliver out of mine hand. And I will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will judge her for the days of Balaam, under which she burned incense. And she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. The greatest sin in all the world, forget God. Now, will you notice what he says, verse 14, Therefore... 
Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly unto her. And I will give her her vineyards there and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Now, it was in the valley of Achor, you will recall, that the children of Israel suffered a great defeat at Ai when they entered the land under Joshua. They had to ferret out that sin that was finally found in the household of Achan, and it had to be judged. And God says here, right where I judge your sin, I'm going to bless you. God says, I intend to restore you. Now, you cannot read this prophecy. That is, take the whole prophecy and come to any other position than God is not through with the nation Israel. I don't care what your theology is, friends. The Word of God is the important thing. And you might be able to spiritualize this, but I don't think you can do that because when God speaks here, he's using a great deal of geography. And I think that when God says Israel and Ephraim, he's talking about a definite people and he's not talking about you and me, but there are tremendous lessons here for us, not only as individuals, but I think for the nation, for that matter. And there was a time when this nation would hear the Word of God, but they've long since passed that stage. I'm reading verse 15 again, and God says, "...I will give her her vineyards there and the valley of Achor for a door of hope." Now, you will recall when the children of Israel came into the land, there were actually three major enemies in the center of that land that had to be eliminated so Joshua could divide the enemy and then concentrate on one section at a time. The first was Jericho. Jericho represents the world. And then he made an attack upon Ai. That represents the flesh. He thought that was easy, and a great many people today think they can live the Christian life in their own strength by means of the flesh. And that always means defeat, by the way. And Joshua was defeated at Ai. But a great lesson was learned there. And God brought them down to the valley of Achor, and Achan was found there to be the one who had sinned at the destruction of Jericho, God told them not to touch any of the unclean things there. And those people were eaten up with venereal disease. And God had a reason for it. But this man disobeyed. And old Joshua, you remember, went down on his face and cried out to God. And he was as pious as I've been at times, complaining to the Lord. The Lord says, get up off your face. Israel hath sin. You have to deal with sin before you can have a victory. And God says, now you deal with the sin. And they dealt with it in the valley of Achor. And from then on, it was victory for this man Joshua. When you deal with the sins of the flesh, it'll mean victory. And therefore, he says here, and the valley of Achor, a door of hope. God says again, I'll judge your sin. And after I've judged your sin... There'll be a glorious, wonderful hope for you in the future. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. So he's definitely referring to that period. Now, he says, and I'll give you a door of hope. 
and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. My friend, even today in the land of Israel, you don't find it quite like this, because this very land that he's talking about right here, even though Israel has the land, they don't have this land. You know who has it? Arabs cultivate this land. This is up near Shechem. This is up in the place where Joseph is buried, the tribe of Ephraim. It's in that area. And where God says the day is going to come, I'm going to bless you. But you don't see that there even today. You're not seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, God says, And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, and shall call me no more Baalai. Now, that is quite interesting here because it's all in the meaning. And I think this is quite lovely, and let's not miss it. Ishai means my husband. And God says, the day is going to come when you're going to call me my husband. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. What does that speak of? That speaks of that which is intimate, that which is personal, that which is based on love, that which is the highest relationship among men, when this woman can say, he's Ishai, he's my husband. And he can say, this is my wife. I think the loveliest things is said in the Bible. We saw it when we were in the Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and he's mine. It was very crude that I heard on the television some time ago, it was a couple of movie stars that were being interviewed, and she was a very beautiful woman, I must admit. And she was asked the question, aren't you afraid that you might lose him when he plays a leading man with some of these other beautiful actresses? She says, no, I give him all that I have, and there's nobody can give him more than I can give him. I am my beloved. My beloved is mine. And when you got that relationship in a marriage, you got a happy home. You won't have to tend these sessions, friends, where they tell you how to live like man and wife. The secret is love. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. And if you got love, you got everything. You can work out your financial problems. You can work out personality difficulties. You can work out how to deal with the children if you love each other. And if you don't, you can't work out anything. And friends... It's wonderful when you have a relationship with God and you can go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say to him, I love you. I belong to you. You belong to me. Remember Paul said, even to the Corinthians, he says, everything is ours. Paul is yours and the world is yours and Christ is yours. Have you made him yours, friend? Do you belong to him and does he belong to you? And if he does... You've got something good going, I'll tell you that. There's no relationship quite like that today. You see, this book is a very wonderful book. It teaches us many things. And Ishai means my husband, but Baalai means my Lord. That's all it means, my Lord. And it sounds like old Baal, does it not? Well, it's connected with Baal. You know, the Lord Jesus said there are going to be many in that day that are going to say, Lord, Lord, in thy name, we've done great things. We've done healing. We've performed miracles. He's going to say, well, I don't even know you. 
May I say to you, the important thing, the all-important thing is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not to run around and mouth saying he's my Lord and I'm doing great things for him and I can do great things today. My friend, it just narrows itself down what he said to Simon Peter by the Sea of Galilee, lovest thou me? Did you love him? And that was the problem with this nation here. They were far from God. Oh, they were calling him Lord. (laughs) They said, yes, he's our Lord. But the day is coming when they're going to say, he's my husband. How personal that is. How intimate that is. And that's on the highest level. Now he says, verse 17, I'll take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. In other words, they'll turn from idolatry. Now he says in verse 18, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of the heaven, with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. Now even the animals in that land, as in our land today, There's a danger of many species becoming extinct. Some already have. God says that the animals have a right to this world. He created them and put them here. And he says in that day, he's going to make a covenant with the beasts. And that's when the lion and the lamb are going to lie down together. Now, today they lie down together, but the lamb's always inside the lion. But in that day... They'll lie down together. That is something we think very little of today. And all of a sudden in this country, we've taken an interest in what is known as ecology. And that is the land and the animals that are in the land. And have you ever noticed that all the way through the Word of God, that God is considering the animals and also he's considering the land itself, blessing to the land? Man, you know, is a polluter. He's a sinner on the inside, and he's a sinner on the outside, and everything that man touches is nothing in the world but sin. And today, they're trying to get us not to throw things along the highway around, not be a litter bug, and it's now a fine if you do that, and it's a good thing it is. I remember driving out from a hunt that a couple friends of mine had several years ago, out on the Mojave Desert. We were coming down the highway, and the sun was going down. And it was hitting the side of the road, and on both sides there was just a beam, a flash of light. I've never seen anything like it. You know what it was? Broken beer bottles and whiskey bottles and, I guess, a few bottles of soda pop. But man, he's a polluter everywhere he goes. God says, I'm going to also... Take care of this earth here, and thank God for that. I don't think men are going to be able to do it. Now, in verse 19, he goes on to say here, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. Now, we're coming to something that is very wonderful here. 
Actually, the word betrothed here means to woo a virgin. <laughs> it means to court a girl. Many of you men can remember your wife when she was a girl, how pretty she was and how you courted her. And by the way, you ought to remember it more often. He said a lot of sweet things then. The other evening, my wife and I were sitting out on the patio. I made this when I was recuperating from my physical trouble. And we were just talking about the fact that we are getting old. And I took a look at her, and I have to say she is getting old like I am. But I can remember that girl that I first saw down in Texas with hair as black as a raven's wing, those flashing brown eyes. She had a sultry look, let me tell you, because she's dark complexion. And I remembered back there how wonderful those days were. And we got just a little sentimental, by the way, as we thought back over those days, how we used to drive up to Fort Worth and we went to a restaurant up there and we got a steak, and you know what you paid for it in that day? Fifty cents apiece. And she was a school teacher, and I was a poor preacher, and I made her pay for her own, even 50 cents. I tell you, she's made up for that, those cents, and I can assure you. To woo a virgin. What a beautiful, lovely picture this in. God says that I intend to win you, but how is he going to do this? I'm going to woo you in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in mercies. You see, there was mercy under the Mosaic system, too. You will find that there was love and law, and there's law and love also. You just can't absolutely segregate one from the other. This is lovely. And this, again, is one of the reasons that I do not think the present return of Israel to that land is a fulfillment of prophecy, certainly not this one. God says, when I woo you and bring you back into that land, why, it'll be in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in mercies. Israel is just like any other nation. Some think they are a little more brutal, but my friend, they're on the defense over there. You can be sure of that. And they have to exercise a strong defense system. They are not back in that land in fulfillment of prophecy. They have returned to the land, but they have not yet returned to the Lord. When they return to the Lord, there will be blessing. They have not yet done that. I'm going to talk about that just in a few minutes, at least if I get there today. Verse 20 now of chapter 2, "...I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness." Now, they never were faithful in the past. They're very much like the church in apostasy today. And thou shalt know the Lord. And they sure don't know him today. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day. Now, that expression, in that day, is an expression that I think is a technical expression. And it refers forward to the time of the last days as it pertains to the nation Israel. It refers to the great tribulation period and the coming of Christ to set up his kingdom down here. It shall come to pass in that day. I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. In other words, 
heaven and earth will be in tune, and Browning will be right in that day, and he's sure not right today that heaven and earth are in tune. Verse 22, "...and the earth shall hear the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel." Now, Jezreel meant God will scatter them, but in that day God will regather them. Listen to him, verse 23, "...and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy." Not only will he regather them, but they will no longer be low Ruhamah, the unpitied daughter of Hosea and Gomer the harlot. But God will now have mercy upon them, and they will obtain mercy. And I will say unto them who were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. They are not saying that today. And today it's Loami. Not my people, but in that day it will be my people. God will say, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, that is not true today, friend. They are not turning to God, but they will turn to God in that day. 